0: Gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Daniel Diggins! <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of The Remnant Podcast. Coming to you once again from sunny Ponte Vedra, Florida. Uh, and continuing our, our really impressive streak of having people we've wanted on for a very long time who now have no choice but to say yes, because they are trapped in their homes. Um, We have one of my, uh, at this point, take it any interpret, parse it any way you like, one of my oldest friends. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, Ronald Bailey, who was uh, a major part of my life and an early part of my life. But before I get to all of that, I'm just too excited to talk to Ron. I should say that this is brought to you by The Dispatch and thedispatch.com. Go to thedispatch.com to sign up for all the free stuff or to pay for all the payable stuff and um, to find inner peace and the true meaning of gunga Gulunga. So anyway, uh, and today's episode is brought to you by our friends at ExpressVPN, um, finally. So for listeners who don't know, I mean, I've quoted Ron many times here Um Ron was my boss for a while in the early, mid-90s. And then I kind of replaced him as the the producer of uh, the TV show that we worked on. And then since then, we have remained friends ever since. I will say this. It's very painful to have to say this in front of Ron, but I have probably, of all of my friends, I can't think of someone who I've learned more from um, and who... I've had more fun arguing with over the last, dear God, quarter century. Um, Ron is currently, and has been for quite a while now, the science correspondent for Reason. Do I have that right? That's correct. And uh, But he has done many things. He was a, one of his first jobs was as a, in New York, was as a ballet critic. Um, and he worked as an economist as in the heart of the Leviathan. And when I knew him, he was a television producer. He's written many books. Um, he is, uh, a, uh, as polymathic as one can get in this day and age. So Ron, welcome to The Remnant. I'm delighted to finally be with you. What took you so long? I don't know. <laughs> it's just, it's, it was just, it, it was a hard bandaid to pull off. Um, <laughs> so, um.
1: Well, we might find out why it took so long if, if, as the conversation goes on. <laughs> we might indeed.
0: We might indeed. So, I, and I should, you know, I should have, you know, we've had several, of your colleagues. And I want to refrain from saying ilk, uh, but your ideological co-conspirators from reason and elsewhere. And we we usually have a fun time with the libertarians. And as you know, I've become more libertarian over the years. Finally, uh, took you long enough. I know, I know, I know. Uh, I will, uh, I will, I'll run you through some of the libertarian paces stuff later in the show, but there's one question to sort of set things up here that I'd like your take on. Uh, I talked to Charlie Cook about this recently. Um, You may have noticed that in the response to the pandemic, many people say stupid things. No. (laughs) And (laughs) one of the things one hears often is that uh, the pandemic proves that the case for limited government no longer makes never made any sense. That we need government. Um, my view is that there's no inherent contradiction between classical liberal conceptions of government and fighting the pandemic. But I was just wondering how you think these things through.
1: Well, the two things to say about that I, I would like to start with. The first is, is that uh, the pandemic is basically occurring in what I call an open access health commons. And the problem with a, an open access commons is there are usually two things you can do about it. And we think about commons as things like rivers that no one owns or forests that no one owns or the atmosphere or, that, or lakes, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And typically what you should be doing with that is assigning property rights so that somebody will own it and will take care of it, essentially, will be responsible for it, who will internalize the cost and the benefits. The problem is that something like the health commons is, is hard to do. Uh, one of the things, uh, for my, my best example of that is is that vaccination is a way of enclosing, if you will, the health commons, because then people are taking responsibility for their health to make sure that they're not harming someone else. And so that's what we have to think about is how do we protect people uh, with this kind of of infectious disease? It's it's a real problem in that regard. Uh, And we'll talk about that in a minute. But then with regard to how centralized government has done such a fantastic job, uh, we can just see how it did, uh, that basically... Our government decided that they were going to outlaw or not per- permit other companies or or laboratories, for example, to develop testing in the in in January. They basically said, "No, nope, we, the CDC, will centralize all testing, and we will take complete control of that." And we see what the result of that is. Places like uh, which no one would think were uh, ungoverned, like West, uh, like uh, Germany or South Korea. They allowed their private companies and academic institutions to develop tests within a week of having a case um, discovered inside their borders and deployed them immediately. And the one thing we can say for sure is the places that tested early are the places that have the fewest fatalities, period. Right. And we dilly-dallied around, took a month and a half before the FDA got around to saying, you know, maybe we'll allow some other places to do this. And by that time, the uh, pandemic had taken off and we're still trying to catch up. And so centralized government is not the solution to the problem. Obviously- Go
0: ahead. one of the things I like about the answer is not the answer I expected. Um, I mean, I agree with it, but it was from a different angle. Um, My sort of point is just going back to political philosophy is that, you know, people like us, I mean, you've always been obviously more libertarian than I am, but people, of our tribe, let's say, we've always said, look, the government is there to do a handful of things, Mm. right? This is one of those things, right? I mean, you can go back to 1600s, you know, in the colonies. I mean, like there's a lot of common law about how epidemics and pandemics are one of these things that you actually do need government to play some role. And I don't remember until this time around, that you had so many, you know, uh, supposedly libertarian, conservative, small government people saying, back off, the government has no right to tell me to wear a mask or do any of these things. It's a very strange new moment here. I,
1: I, I... I find it very strange as well. Uh, the, obviously, again, the, th- the other thing you can do in the open access commons I was talking about is you can't privatize it. You have to regulate it. And this is mm-hmm. one of those situations where you have to regulate it because we don't have a really good way of making sure that everyone takes control of their microbes, as it were. And uh, But again, you can do it in a stupid way or a smart way. We've chosen the stupid way would be yeah, my so, suggestion and
0: just in, in your take because I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with this right now because i i got into a thing with a flack from the administration huh. who everybody who wants to think that the administration has handled this perfectly thought <laughs> that she had slam dunked me on something and so basically what happened was i've oh. been obsessed with how when almost in all the public utterances from the administration oh, the reese the 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 claim is is that they had the travel ban from China that saved an, an ever-growing number of lives. You know, now Trump's telling it's millions of lives, um, and and then my my problem has been that after they did that, which I think it they're they're perfectly fine to take some credit sure, for doing it, absolutely. and they're perfectly yeah, fine yeah, yeah. to point out that people were jerks about it and and all the rest. That's fine, but then they just took their eye off the ball, as far as I could tell, and that is correct. And, and so I tweeted, you know, so what did they do in February? Because uh, when the National Security Advisor wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal doing this seven crucial steps that you know, to fight the pandemic, and they made, talked about these seven decisions the Trump administration made, none of them were in February. Right. <laughs> and so anyway, this 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 flack then listed this list of meetings, essentially, and briefings that they had right, internally right. as if this was fighting the pandemic. And right. All of the usual suspects, you know, the the Freedom Caucus types and some of the heritage types, you know, all the people who were sort of part of that echo chamber just twitchy celebrated as if the, as if this was this amazing comeback. And I thought it was this was a. These were minutes of meetings. So what is your take on the chronology of... Because of, it, it, some of it, it seems to me, is less of an indictment of centralized government than just sort of incompetent government, right? Uh, I mean, South Korea has some centralized government, but right. it wasn't incompetent government. That
1: that, that Yes, I think there's a fair way to characterize the, the, the distinction between what happened in South Korea and here. Uh, yeah, I've looked at some of the stuff that the administration put out with regard to its timeline, and so where they put out this timeline... And if you look at the timeline, you're right, it's a bunch of internal meetings which had no decisions taken, no policies were taken at any point. Uh, They're taking a lot of credit, and what they forget to tell you is the stuff that they didn't do, that they should have Mm. been deploying testing widely almost immediately. They made a whole bunch of really dumb decisions. The the critical thing for me is testing would have told us how extensive the uh, the infection had had become, and we would have been able to adopt Testing, tracing, and isolation self-isolation is a way of helping to control the pandemic, which is what's working in Germany and South Korea much earlier. And now, you know, it's 1.3 million Americans have confirmed diagnoses of of the disease, and we're up to almost 75,000 who are dead. This could have been prevented had the administration actually taken some interest in trying to figure out what was going on. Meet, internal meetings are all fine and, and, and good, but if you don't take any action, and they didn't take any action, and in fact our president was sitting there constantly saying, it's going to go away, it's, it's small, right. and blah. it was clear that the, whatever the smart people in the administration were trying to do, he was standing in the way of them pulling out the policies and figuring out act, how to actually address the particular crisis that was brewing.
0: So uh, you've been writing a lot of great stuff about all this, and you're kind of a data guy to begin with. What, I, you hear these different numbers bandied around, and I thought Scott Gottlieb this morning on TV had a scary one, but uh, rather than Well tell too me,
1: What does Scott say?
0: Well, I, I, I may have misheard him, but I could have sworn that Scott said that for every positive test result that we get, mm-hmm. you have to assume there are five or 10 out there that have not been tested. That's about right. Yeah. That would be so about, is that right. That's about, so, that's about right. So we had like 25,000 te- positive tests yesterday or the day before. I mean, something like that. It's like about 25,000 a right. day. Yeah. So that means there are between 150 and or 125 and 300,000 positives for every one positive we find?
1: Yeah, probably something like that. And and that, in a certain way, that's good news because it means right. that those people are either mild or asymptomatic, and therefore they're not going to impact the healthcare system. They're probably going to get fine, better on their own. The bad news is that they're going out there and they're going to infect other people who are vulnerable because as their population increases, their ability to impact people who are vulnerable will also increase as well and that will ultimately end up increasing
0: the death rate but you would think so w- where do we stand right now on what the actual the best guess of what the death rate is on this thing is it 0.1 is it 0.5 where where what do you think it is because that just seems like you've <laughs> seeing more cases of this
1: right yeah the um I have been spending and uh, a, very, a great deal of my intellectual energy trying to figure that out the best I can. And I, and please, listeners, do not hold me to this, but my best guess at the moment is that the infection uh, fatality rate, that is, of the percentage of people who are infected, not the confirmed cases, which the confirmed cases is like 5% of confirmed right. cases die, but these are people, all those untested people out there who are infected, who are mild or asymptomatic, is probably around uh, 0.8%. Okay. Which is about, again, this is a metric, and you can fight about it, about eight times worse than a normal flu.
0: Um,
1: so. But the good news is it's only a third as bad as the Spanish flu back in 1918.
0: Which is, now, but that that point eight. Let's say it's point eight point zero Point 0. 0. zero. Yeah,
1: it, it, it's it's only point eight percent.
0: Right. sorry. Point eight percent. Right. So, um, so that's eighty thousand people out of a million who get it. Right. Right. My am I, am I math. Right that's there? correct. Okay. So we're coming up on eighty thousand people already. Is that eighty thousand people? Is that is that million a statistically representative? segment of the population with the, from, you know, with the, all the age brackets recommended? Uh, no, represented? no, it's, it,
1: it, it, it's, it's, it's almost exactly like a normal flu is, is that the vast majority of people who die of the disease are over 65. It's, so, it's, right, something, my, it's something like 70%. So it's not higher, actually. I,
0: I, as you, as you well know, I'm not great at math. Um, so let me ask it this way. You say it's a point eight. Uh, death rate, um, In, infection for fatality rate, yeah. Right. So, uh, but and that's my best guess. Don't hold me to it. Oh re- no, no, sure, sure. I'm, I'm just trying to understand the math here, right? So let's say, so, but that's out of that's assuming a normal population, though, right? Was no my question.
1: Uh, no, no. I'm, I'm thinking that the, no, this is what what it will add up to ultimately when you know. Uh, a year from now when we look back the majority of people who will have died will be people over age 65 but this applies to the entire population but for Okay
0: but so like my point is, is like if you had a population simply of people over the age of 65 the death rate would be in the way double digits or I, I would like be that. yeah okay I, that's 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 the point i was trying yeah, to get yeah, at yeah, yeah. My, is that you're talking about a normal sample so right the reason why it's so low is that the vast majority of people are not, don't have the comorbidities or are under a certain age. Right. Things. Right. Right. So it's, it's cause like I, ha- so just between us and the, now the listeners in <laughs> February, back when we were being told it was going to go to zero, I had a big argument with my mom about all of this stuff. And you know, my mom, well, and, and my mom was of the opinion at the time that this was just the flu. Right. And I said, it's really not, you know, certainly you w- wouldn't want to bet that. And then I finally just got really frustrated and said, but mom, forget all that. Let's say it is the flu. The flu could kill you. Right. <laughs> you know, cause, right. cause my mom has got these comorbidities that would, you know, it's, it's a fire. It's the flu. Right. It could still kill you. Right. But, um,
1: but, what before, do you make but of course all- she goes out and gets her flu shot, right?
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but um, what, I'm, what do you make of the people who are just... First of all, the argument, but also the motivations behind it to insist that this is no different than the flu. I mean, it's a, it, it can be a source of great frustration for me.
1: Well, I, I think, that is there, you know, we're all hoping that ultimately we're wrong with these numbers, that it will turn out that there was an overreaction and that, in fact, uh, the, 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 the implied death rate will be considerably lower. I mean, the thing is, I'm a data guy. I'm not trying to figure out necessarily the policies. And people get frustrated with me because they're going, well, is it worth, you know, if if it, so what if a bunch of old people die? Should we have flattened the economy to prevent that? And I'm going, I don't have to make that decision. I'm just telling you what the facts are as I see them with regard to how this would play out if you, you know, adopt this policy or that policy. I'm not telling you to adopt that policy or not. And I really find it actually hard for me to parse uh, whether or not we, what we've done is a great idea or not. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, it could have probably been done better. And as I say, if we could go back in history and do South Korea or Germany, we would be in a much better spot than we are today.
0: Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, don't worry, it's a cigar cough.
1: Um, That's not a comorbidity.
0: <laughs> Actually, there's exciting stuff about nicotine and. Uh, I saw uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it only works for French people. <laughs> um, there is this, though, there's this, you know, this obsession in certain quarters to say it's just the flu, right? And that, you know, we don't kill, you know, 60,000 60, people die every year of the flu, which is, we mm. can argue about the number. Fine, let's take it as a given. Um, and the, therefore we shouldn't do anything. Um, the last time we had a really bad flu season, I don't remember the refrigerated morgue trucks um, full of bodies in the streets of New York. Right? I mean, explain to, explain why you think this is, in fact, different than the flu.
1: Well, it happened much faster than a typical flu season. I mean, the flu season typically goes from October through April, right? So you would have fewer deaths over time. And there's actually a pretty good argument that um, that the uh, CDC, which has not covered itself in glory, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, not covered themselves with glory in this uh, handling this crisis at all. Uh, it has been uh, overestimating the flu deaths anyway, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, because what they do is they, you know, they they make a, they have a model and they look at symptoms that are reported and then they put a fudge factor on top of the model to figure out what they think the the ultimate death rate would be for any particular flu season. But it's a, it's a modeled result; they're not actually counting bodies. And so what happens is is that actually they may be overestimating the number of flu deaths which then makes this particular virus look even worse because if right. they've been underestimating i mean if they've been overestimating the number of flu deaths we actually have bodies to count in this particular uh, uh, pandemic then uh that would also explain part of the reason that you don't have refrigerator trucks during the flu season is that they're not really the right numbers
0: um what what do you make what do you how would you how do you parse the these excess death numbers, right? Because we have um X number, you know, there's, there's this big debate. Are we overcounting or undercounting COVID deaths? And right. I, I think we're undercounting. We're, under, but, we're probably undercounting. Um but there is this sort of mysterious thing in all of these countries where the typical number of deaths in a given month month is X, and it's way above X, but only a fraction of those are half or two-thirds or four-fifths whatever it is are attributed to the coronavirus the rest are unexplained deaths what do you think those unexplained deaths are
1: uh well they're probably the result of two things one is it's uncounted covid deaths but the other thing is is that people are increasingly re- reluctant to access the healthcare system. so people who would otherwise have gone into uh, to, to address other medical problems that ultimately killed them uh, don't and they die at home. so that uh, would account for that uh, at least a significant proportion of the unexplained deaths I would I would suggest but again these are the kinds of, we're in the middle of this okay. and so it's going to be no one figured out how many people were dying during the Spanish flu for example in 1918 until epidemiologists could spend years later going through the numbers and trying to figure it out. We're going to be doing that. For this uh this episode as well uh so all of these numbers are best guesses that people have and so we're all kind of trying to figure out how to handle this through the murky data and in hindsight some of the decisions will be have been wrong because we mm-hmm. wouldn't really know have known what really is going on uh and it you know i i i, I it, it pains me, but apparently everything becomes part of the culture war anymore. Right. And and this is driving me crazy, as I say, because I'm trying to, at least for my readers, to say, this is the data as best I can provide it to you. I am not trying to be on one side or the other, quote, side. I'm just telling mm-hmm. you what I can figure out. And it, it, every time I put out a new way of parsing the data or updating or the news or whatever people attack me going, well, how dare you? You obviously hate Donald Trump or how dare you? You're, you know, uh, you, you, obviously love Donald Trump. <laughs> and yeah. it's just kind of like, no, I'm just telling you the best I can is here's the data you make up your decisions with regard to what the policies should be. Um, and it, and it's very frustrating.
0: I, I, I sympathize. Um, um, the, you said earlier, uh, and this is—if this seems like I'm trying to bait you, maybe it is true. Um, you said earlier I that I might. <laughs> <laughs> you said earlier that if you can't privatize it, uh, you need to regulate it. Right. And you were talking about. Um, and then there's good regulation and stupid regulation. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> fair enough. So, are there any commons that? I mean, the way it sounded there before was that you would prefer that privatization is always better than the regulation, but maybe not. Um, are there any commons that you would rather have the regulation than the privatization? I mean, you, presumably you don't want to privatize the entirety of the oceans. Uh, well, if I could, I would. But okay, well there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: I mean, why why not privatize the oceans? Uh, we we uh, what you do is you privatize fisheries, and in fact, every place. We have extremely good data that when you privatize fisheries, they start improving immediately. And this happened in Iceland and New Zealand, is it happening off the, the coast of Maine? But it it but here here I have a peculiar fascination with privatization of fisheries, which I will go as a tangent. I don't eat fish, I think they taste nasty, nothing wrong with fish that tastes like beef couldn't fix. But the, pro- the problem is, is that you have to wait for a fisheries to collapse before the fishers will say, oh, by God, we have to privatize it now. Right. People just don't want to go in that direction. They want to be hunters and gatherers for some odd reason rather than privatize. But it, it works every time it's been tried with fisheries. And so, yes, of course
0: you should privatize the ocean. Um, but- well, but there's a difference between privatizing a fishery and privatizing... From sea to shining, shining sea, you know, seventy-two percent of the Earth's surface area. I mean,
1: well, fine. Uh, let's let's we'll work out the details of that. But most of the stuff <laughs> that we want to we want to privatize would be within two hundred miles of the coast of right. some country or other. So, and we own that,
0: right? That's the international. That's the demarcation of international waters. Is about more or miles? less
1: yes. Yeah, it's the uh, uh, economic exclusion zone. Is is the exact title. There. okay so would you privatize the air uh i would well as you probably know i've uh had a very vexed uh, history with regard to climate change
0: no i know i want to <laughs> get there but uh
1: sure. uh I, I, just for your listeners who don't know this is is that initially i was incredibly uh, skeptical of uh climate change as a big problem and I resisted it for a very, very long time. And sometime around 2005, I decided that oh, the data is coming in. It's pretty bad. It could be bad. And then I just did a, a, a huge uh, article uh, back in November for a reason where I went through all of the data uh, and basically thought, concluded it's, it re- really will become a big problem if we don't address it. The other thing about uh, me and climate change is, is that uh, I have, you know, and I'm not advising this at home, but I have a peculiar fascination with UN climate meetings. So I've been to about 20 of them. And uh, one of the things that spending time with these folks is that my preferred idea for privatizing the atmosphere was cap and trade systems. Mm-hmm. And I watched how that played out with Europe and if Europe, who loves the bureaucracy, cannot pull out a cap-and-trade system, trying to roll this across the entire planet with India, China, Russia, Brazil, Mexico as part of it is not going to work. It's just not going to. So I reluctantly have decided that um, a, uh, basically an entirely rebated carbon tax is the way to, to control that particular commons. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has to be entirely rebated. Everybody will get a check. it goes you know uh, right through the government. They don't take a penny of it. But
0: good luck with that, Ron.
1: I, 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 <laughs> again, I can tell you the right thing to do. I can't tell you how to get there. I do policy, okay. not politics.
0: All right, so it's rebated to whom?
1: Uh, to every American. You get a check uh, once a month. Your
0: carbon check. Your carbon check. It would be sort of like the way the Alaska fund works for oil. And But but the Alaska fund for oil, and we both know that I know a little bit about Alaska. Um, I said kind there's of. There's actually wealth created by the, there's wealth that's thrown off by the natural resources that create that fund. I understand. What, what wealth is created by taxing carbon?
1: Uh, basically what you're doing is avoiding destruction.
0: Okay, that's, that's harder to monetize. It
1: is harder right? to monetize. And I'm not saying you necessarily get the price right, but you start with it, and if things start getting worse than predicted, then you increase the tax. If they get better, maybe you lower the tax. But in any case, people will be able to use uh, their carbon uh, tax refund, as it were, or rebate or whatever, uh, to offset whatever the additional costs in fuel and electricity and so forth that they would have to pay. So, uh, since you brought I, it up again, I, I, you know, I don't want to necessarily solve this particular problem here. It's a, it's a long discussion and it's not something I, 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 choose to do because, uh, I love the idea of it. It's, I think it's a big problem and, uh, it would be better to get started sooner rather than later on it.
0: No, no, I, I wanted to talk about the climate change stuff for listeners that don't know. I mean, Ron was being very circumspect about it, but he was a big, uh, you know, uh, climate yeah, deniers Please strong, <laughs> but you know, you were, you were a very strong skeptic of it, all of it. I mean, I remember, was it your first or second book was the, um, uh, eco uh, scam, eco scam, you know, yeah. where this stuff played heavily into it. And you've been a huge, you know, so as you know, um, people on our line of work have a handful of people on certain subjects that they basically rely on to help explain these things. People you trust, all that kind of thing. Um, like I, I just won't write about federal reserve stuff because it's incomprehensible to me. And uh, but if I have to like understand something, I go to people like Romesh or one of the economists at AI and they walk right. through it. <clears throat> you were always one of these guys on the, the climate change stuff that I trusted. And so when you changed your mind about it, that was a big signal to me that, um, you know, you were bought and paid for by Greenpeace. Now, but, that yeah. you, <laughs> that, that, it was something that was a more serious thing than it, it seemed. Well, but, but what there,
1: happened is ExxonMobil stopped sending the checks. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, the the response from some of your longtime friends was quite harsh on all of that.
1: Oh, uh, it was. Uh, one of my favorite moments was at a, a dinner for a particular organization that you know, where I was basically uh, compared to Judas Iscariot or Pontius Pilate. It was Pontius Pilate, basically.
0: Yeah. So, um, in public,
1: of my five hundred of my friends.
0: So speaking of some of the deniers, um, I just happened to ha- happen to see. Um, oh, I don't want to screw up his name. It's it's it's. Patrick Moore, right? Was it, He was the, who was this, this the, the, the The guy who used to be at Greenpeace. No, no, no. Um, I'm oh. thinking of Patrick Michaels. The Oh, Patrick Michaels, yes, yes. Who used to be at Cato. Yes, and right. uh, I, I think it was him. If, if it wasn't him, uh, maybe we'll just cut this whole part of it. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I saw him or someone I thought was him tweeting this week, uh, with an interesting new formulation which i had not quite seen um i mean i i learned that there are some benefits to climate to global warming sure, from you Sure, you yeah. know longer growing cycles you know more uh, carbon more dioxide, people, yeah more people die in winter than in summer right, so blah right, blah blah right, so I mean, I, and I, you and you still agree with that right sure, um but for the time being yeah just he, keep it going whoever it was made this point and it was retweeted by a friend of mine that if it exists, if, if climate change is real at all, comma, right. it's entirely a good thing right? because it feeds plant growth and oceans and all of these kinds of things and all the rest. Right. It. And on its own, I didn't think it was all that important at the moment, but it did seem like you could, you know, you see all sorts of things. I don't want to get into the Trump stuff, but, you know, when people the, the cycle is often Condemn what he does. And then within, you know, three to six weeks, you're damn right. He did it. And it's awesome. You know, um, it seems like me. May- I, I got this feeling that maybe the, the anti-climate change crowd is is having a strategic retreat to a new position, which is OK. It is happening, but it's not it's it's a good thing. Is that actually happening or am I just overreading something?
1: I, I'm not following necessarily the particular uh I don't, I don't follow the uh, ins and outs of ideological debate on this, mm-hmm. but it is, a, it is very likely true if you look at the econometric models who are combined with climate models, therefore you can absolutely trust their results. <laughs> uh, uh, if you look at that, that probably uh, as climate change begins, and we're probably in that period, it's better for humanity overall right now than it will turn out to be. So you're getting more benefits than costs at the moment. I mean there was a wonderful study in Nature, I don't know, two or three years ago, that that said, well, part of the reason that Americans are not so worried about, they speculated about climate change is actually the weather in the United States in most places has improved over the last 20 years. Hmm. They they like it slightly warmer. And so all right, that's plausible. <laughs> but then the question is Will people in uh, Maine like it when their temperatures are more like Washington DC?
0: Mm-hmm. And so is that happening I mean wh- what is the time scale that you think that is going to happen?
1: Well, it's not probably ever going to be quite that warm in, in, in Maine, honestly. Uh, but the time scale I, <clears throat> the main thing is is that if it if, if climate change is gradual and goes fairly slowly over time, uh, humanity and most of the environment should be able to uh, adapt to it over the coming century. The question is, uh, if it goes much faster than than that, if if it speeds up, and there's some indication that it's going to be speeding up, and if and if that and that the problem is not climate change so much, it's the speed of climate change. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the best analysis that I can see is that we're the climate is changing about something like uh, 80 to 100 times faster than the end of an ice age. Think, think about it this way. The last ice age was about 4 degrees Celsius cooler than our current climate. If the models are right, we're going to be about 3 to 4 degrees warmer by the end of the century. So that's as much change as you get in an ice age in 100
0: years. This could be a problem. And so what are the and I know you know people who ask these questions all the time. Um, What are the the tangible problems? Is every place going to start looking like Australia did with the fires? Is it going to be, you know, crop failures? Or is it, I mean, what, what, to the the people who say, why will it matter to me? What, what are the three or four concrete things that will matter to them? Um, Again, The question is:
1: Is uh, how quickly will the changes occur? I do believe humanity will have the ability to adapt to whatever is going to occur. It will be
0: particularly once we privatize space, uh,
1: <laughs> which uh, we certainly should have been doing. But uh,
0: I, know, I know, I agree with that. Uh,
1: but no, the um, again, the question is. Uh, sea level rise. How ha- mm-hmm. how fast is that going to occur? How soon are you going to have to leave that wonderful house in Pontevedra to uh-huh. to
0: go inland? Uh, and- Sooner than the oceans will catch me, because it's not my house. But, <laughs>
1: <anyway>. <laughs> but, but, but th- those are the kinds of things uh, that you have to worry about as sea level rises. Is it accelerating? The evidence is, it suggests that it is I- I- accelerating. And if it continues to accelerate, l- like the last century the best guess is that sea level rose by about eight inches. Did anyone notice? Eh, not really. But if it goes up three feet in a century, people are going to notice, and it's going to be expensive to work around it and so forth. Again, I think humanity will be able to do that. And presumably...
0: But not Venice. Venice is going to have a problem.
1: Venice is going to have a problem. Venice already has a problem. New Orleans is going to have a problem. Yes, New Orleans is going to have a problem. Uh, But again, you know... The other thing, again, I can argue it either way, um, the, by the end of the century, humanity, the average per capita income on planet Earth should be somewhere around seventy dollars to $80,000 per person. Right now, it's about twelve 000, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a person. So three generations hence or two generations hence, they're going to be so much wealthier with so much better technologies. Climate change may be the least of their problems. I don't know. The question is, are there sensible things that don't whack the economy we can do now that might slow the process down so that we gain more information and we're able to handle what comes? And that's why I'm in favor of a relatively small carbon tax that is gradually increased over time because then we can adapt to it. Um,
0: Yeah, so this has always been... I mean, And and again, I I first got interested in a lot of this stuff from you, um, but this has always been my... So I'm I'm sort of with Matt Ridley. I'm uh think it's happening.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I understand.
0: You know, um, and it's something to keep an M- eye M- on. Matt's a buddy,
1: about. and we we, we yeah. have
0: a slight disagreement about this. Um, but uh the 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 logic that I always had a problem with, and you know, I have colleagues at AI who are in favor of a carbon tax too. So I mean I'm not I don't I don't I don't throw it and and we have friends, we know this that you know, at the big oil companies like Exxon Mobil, they've priced this into their models a long time ago. Right. The idea that like the real opposition to carbon taxes is not from big oil anymore. It's from other players. But um, the thing that's always bothered me about the climate change arguments is that with most problems in life, certainly most major problems the preferable way to deal with them isn't to, to manage them. It is to cure them. Um, and you know, I always remember I talked about this before, you know, there's a sci-fi short story I read years and years and years ago, where the characters were heading to the nearest closest star system, but because they didn't have faster and light travel, they would have to like, uh, in suspended animation. And even then, it would take them, you know, 500 years to be there. And shortly after they set off, they encounter a ship that has faster-than-light travel. And they're like, huh, that was interesting. And the captain says, all right, let's turn around and go home. Because now that they know the faster-than-light travel exists, the idea of spending 500 years to get to this planet right. will mean that by the time you get there, your great-great-grandkids will have, be living in cities on that planet. And the the... The lack of interest among people in things like geoengineering uh, yeah. drives me kind of crazy. Yeah, me too. Uh, I mean, and, the
1: geoengineering is basically a backup emergency cooling plan. Why, why, why wouldn't you have that just in case? You don't do well, it. I, you I, have I, it. You 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 do the experiments to see well, will this work? And then you don't do it until also oh my god, the temperature is going up a degree per decade. We got to do something.
0: Right. Yeah. And, you know, and then um, and there are all sorts of tests that you can do that don't destroy the planet Correct. by accident. Right. Correct. I mean, Correct. they did that thing with the iron sulfide in the oceans. Sure. And it, sure. it was pretty, at least my understanding, it was pretty successful. Um, but um, I guess the, I guess what I'm getting at is, is that, you know, and you went through this on the climate change stuff 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, because of my personal journey with in the Trump era, you, I find myself, quote unquote, on the same side of people I've long disagreed with for profound, in profound ways. Sure. And I still disagree with them and they drive me crazy, you know? And so I, I am not, I haven't gone full Bill Crystal. I don't talk about electing Democrats. I don't talk about, um, uh, you know, the, loving the praise I get from MSNBC and all these kinds of things. I don't, I am not interested in doing that kind of stuff, but the, it, does it bother you at all on the climate change front that you are de facto sort of on the side of people who make all sorts of insane arguments about the environment? and make all sorts of insane
1: arguments about? I'm I'm not on their side. I'm on the data side. (laughs) I mean, look, uh, 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 Naomi Klein. I mean, she put it all up there in her idiot book. Uh, uh, This changes everything, climate versus capitalism. I mean, Mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is, is she's like, uh, she's saying, this is a great crisis. Now we can do all the socialist heaven we want because of this enormous crisis. I'm saying, no, use the market, solve the problem that's what you have to do. There's a carbon tax is a kind of market mechanism. It sets a price on an externality and then it encourages people to move away from that particular product and start developing other ways of using energy, conserving it, uh, perhaps solar, perhaps nuclear. God, I would hope for nuclear. Those kind of things. But of course I I'm doing I'm trying to do the best data I can with the best policy I can. I recognize the fact that there are all kinds of people who who have wanted to transform our society uh, for all kinds of reasons that in horrible ways uh, that are using the climate crisis as an excuse to do policies that they wanted to do for decades. Remember, just, just a little down memory lane, why did we do a lot of research on solar energy in the first place? Does anyone remember why? I- we were running out of oil. Oh right, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was in yeah. the 1970s. We yeah. were running out of oil. We didn't have enough fossil fuels. We were having to turn coal into natural gas because we were running out of natural gas. Carter, uh, President Carter at the time was going to spend $3 trillion deploying solar panels to pr- produce 20% of our electricity by the year 2000. $3 trillion was a bit of money back in the 1970s the economy was barely that size. Yeah,
0: now it's just phase three exactly. of the phases <laughs> exactly. of the pandemic. Uh, um,
1: but so the point is, is that, and of course, everybody, uh, how should we say this? The same sort of people who are now saying we need to do solar power because of climate change were saying we now need we need to take over the economy and, and, and control energy and so forth because we're running out of energy. So it was the same environmental group that was saying energy problems uh, was the reason for solar power. Now it's climate change. And it, and it, the policy's always been the same. The crisis has changed. And you pay no attention to those people. They already know what they want to do. They don't really care about
0: the science. I hope that I care about the science. No, I, mean, I, I, I think you do. But I mean, I think you also know what I'm talking about in the sense that um, because of the way, I mean, you you, you lamented earlier about how the pandemic is turning into a culture war thing. Yes. Everything is a culture war thing. And it didn't used so to be when necessarily. You, when you can see, I, I agree, but like you and, and they shouldn't be, but when you can when you concede the premise of the blue team about climate change it's it's a double signal, right? It's a signal to the blue team that maybe you're like No, like-minded. I assure you
1: both sides hate me. It's good.
0: I I I <laughs> I I can attest to that. I get it. But, um, but um, my other point is that it's... I can hardly wait to get the emails from your listeners shortly. I think they'll be mostly thoughtful. I mean, uh, there'll be people mad at me that I'm not pressing you more about the, the weeds of the climate science stuff. But, you know, that's not...
1: I, I love capable. weeds. Just keep going. No, I know you're perfectly <laughs>
0: capable of doing the weeds. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's like, remember years ago, I heard the story about how uh, they invited Michael Kinsley to debate um, Milton Friedman on the gold standard. Uh And Michael Kinsley was like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to debate Milton Friedman on the gold standard. I mean, I think he's wrong, but like, there's just things I'm not going to debate him about because he knows, you know, there's like, I'm not going to debate you on what the the third IPCC addendum to the whatever thing is. Um, I just take it all under advisement. Um, and yes, we need to bleep out the f bomb back there. Um, so, getting but just briefly getting back to the um, the pandemic before we get into the uh, um, into the true ideological weeds. Um, the culture war point, I think, is a really important one because I, you know, originally. Early, very early on, I was sort of half jokingly calling this the "confirm your virus," com- confirm your priors virus. Yeah, <laughs> because everybody was just you know, I mean, it was you know, Bernie Sanders says this proves the need for socialism, and right, you know, people said this proves the need for the Green New Deal, or this proves the need for a payroll tax cut. You know, and right. and it seemed briefly, at least, that we were moving away from that. Yeah, and as people were actually dealing with the reality of what was going on, right. But now it seems like we're sort of circling back to all of that. Yep. And I, it, it, in part, I think it's because the thing is moving so as weird as it is to say this, it's actually moving so slowly. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, I mentioned on this other podcast that we do that I added up the top, I gave up adding up the top disasters in American history from the list on Wikipedia um, because when I hit the 41st most deadly disaster, still hadn't broken like 50,000 deaths cumulatively. Right. Um, and if this were bombings going off around the country with each death rate for the daily death rate, right. you wouldn't get, you know, beer muscled yachts saying, who are you to tell me to wear a mask? You know, you wouldn't get people saying, you know, um, you know, it's my right to to not socially distance or whatever. But because it's slow and out of out of sight, it plays out differently. But I've noticed this thing where at Fox, where I'm a contributor, they're starting to rack up more and more epidemiologists and public health experts who are serious people. These are not like right. suckers who are all only open up the economy side right. to one extent or another. You know, I mean, and they're not all making dumb arguments. So, they're, you know, they're summer's sure. just saying protect the elderly, do with this, do that, whatever. And then on uh, MSNBC, most of the epidemiologists should be coming on with a scythe and a reaper's cloak. <laughs> <laughs> the way they talk about it is, you know, we're doomed. Stock up on canned goods, eat your children. So, um, it, I know you don't want to talk about what we should do, but, um, what should we do? <laughs> <laughs> like if you, if let's say uh, you were uh, stuck. Let, me, let
1: me turn it around on you. What, what we're about to do is, you You know, that phrase we've all heard about the laboratories of democracy, the states are laboratories uh-huh. of democracy. We're about to find out in six weeks or not, or so which ones are whether or not opening up is going to open the floodgates of uh, pandemic death or not. So keep an eye on Georgia
0: and Texas and let's see what happens. Yeah. Okay. So, but, all right. So, all right. Since you don't want to answer this, um, this is one of the things that worries me and I have to admit, I hate, hate thinking about these things in terms of what the political consequences will be. Right. Um, it, it's, 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 analogous to when there's one of these mass shootings, and you can see it on Twitter, people are just, it's like they're waiting for the last lottery number to find <laughs> out it was a pro-life activist or a, gre- or a Green New Deal person so that they can then say, see, your side is full of the monsters and your side's full of the monsters. Right. I hate the ghoulishness of all of it. Right. But there are serious consequences if, let's say, we go into the summer and most of the people I've read say for all the obvious reasons during the summer, the thing is going to abate at least somewhat because sunlight seasonality, all that kind of thing. You're going to have an enormous number of people who are going to get very vocal in their anger about the economic shutdown.
1: Sure.
0: And, um, and then if you have a, and God willing, we do, um, uh, a vaccine or even just a really robust treatment that right. makes it not a death sentence anymore, right. that that will color all of the decisions we've made so far in a really nasty way Correct. and change our politics dramatically. And, and one of the things I worry about is that it becoming, you already see it all over the place. This idea that the people who are pushing more robust public safety measures, these are, you know, this is the, the deep state trying to run our lives. These are the leftists trying to run our lives. That argument will get much more power correct? if it turns out that, that we get our, our handle on this. On the other hand, if we don't, and then you have a real spike in the fall, which seems likely if we don't come up with one of those things, the argument flips the other way and the people who are saying open up the economy were a bunch of monsters. And um, I don't, I'm just trying to anticipate how... Those politics are going to play out. And I don't I, I, I agree with you that basically the, there's no way of knowing it's a wait and see kind of thing. But um, what is your best guess about how you think this is going to play out over the next six months?
1: politics or the well no I mean, the, as it the, relates the to disease
0: the, well, both well, that I mean i had I had Steve Kornacki on earlier this week, and he says every time people want me to predict anything about the election, the first thing I say is, well, how's the pandemic going to play out right, right? i mean that's it, sort of a problem, but what do you, you know you tell me how the pandemic plays out, and then we can figure out what the politics are going to be
1: and this is just a guess at this point uh-huh. uh, and it really the, and I hope that I'm wrong. I think that it will, that what's going to happen is by the beginning of June, because some places will have started opening up. And one of the problems is, even I feel this, is that people are getting frustrated by this. They want to get out. They want to do yeah. things. They want normality back. And so the, the, the quote-unquote lockdown is going to start dissipating anyway, no matter what our government tells us to do. People are just going to start going out in the next month or so and uh the the best thing that could happen is in fact there's a seasonality to the the virus and it's going to abate anyway so while it's opening up it'll 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 start abating anyway but my fear is that it may not be seasonal uh there seems to be less evidence for that than i was hoping to see at this point uh And what will happen is by the beginning of June, the middle of June, uh, it will start spiking again. And the number of confirmed cases will start going. We're we're at a plateau right now. We haven't really, we flattened the curve, but we haven't gotten the curve to go down. Yeah. Uh, If you look at it nationally, I mean, you see some places like New York has managed to get the curve to go down. But nationally, we're just on confirmed cases flat.
0: Which is big, it's about two percent today of deaths at right, least, right? right? And that's and, and but not,
1: the deaths keep going up and down. Uh, I was just saying yesterday it was about twenty five hundred people, which it should, you know, if the curve were going down, it should have already, you know, we should be considerably less than that, and, mm-hmm. and we're not. Um, my best guess is it's going to flare up again, and it will become apparent that uh, I hope it will become become apparent. That um, uh, that the reopening was probably going to be very costly in terms of lives. Uh, the question then is: Should we go ahead and reopen anyway and and allow you know to some extent the economy to recover? My problem with that, and we all know this, is is that we're all sitting here thinking to ourselves: Well, okay, are we going to go to a restaurant? Are we going to go see a play? Are we going to go? To a football game, and my best guess is that most people are going to go. Let's let those other people go first, and then we'll see what happens. Right. And so the economy is not going to bounce back. As you know, we'll, so basically the lockdown will begin to erode, and I think the cases will increase and the deaths will increase. Uh, but the economy is not going to recover. So it kind of be in the worst of both worlds a lockdown economy or an economy that hasn't recovered with increasing death rates. Though there's one solution that could solve the whole thing, and Scott Gottlieb has come up with it, a whole bunch of other people have done it, is a massive system of testing. I mean, there's this. I was just reporting on it yesterday, the people at the Broad Institute in in Massachusetts and other people come up with this fabulous new uh, 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 point of care test that probably could be refined so that everybody could test themselves essentially every day if we wanted to do that. And if we did that, if everyone could test themselves every day, then we could self-isolate whenever we found ourselves to be uh, exposed to the virus. And I think most of us would be happy to do that. Yeah. And in which case, if we had a massive regime of testing along with some tracing, and then Scott has the idea, and I think he's right with that. Is we pay people to stay at home for the two weeks um, that they have the disease, and we pay them. Here's some the money. Don't worry, right. your, your your job's safe, and you have money, and you can stay in this nice hotel. Uh, then that would be a way to get back to normality very, very quickly. And I don't see again, again, it's a, it's the only way I that I can think of solving. What is, again, going back to my notion of a, a health commons problem, mm-hmm. is all of a sudden then we're responsible for our own microbes because we know we have the microbes. Right. This is what testing would do for us. And, the, and again, considering the trillions of dollars we've frittered away on the lockdown and all kinds of stupid ways that we've done it, a few, you know, tens of billions of dollars rolling this out would be a huge a uh, wonderful investment in, in repairing the damage that's happened to our country. That would be my policy. It has been my policy. I came out in favor of massive testing more yeah. than two months ago, and I still don't see uh, the, the piecemeal response we've had from our national government and from our state governments in the face of this. It's been incredibly disappointing.
0: No, it's it's... As my wife and I, the fair Jessica, we talk about. By the way, say just, hello to her for me. I will, and happy birthday, right? Yes, yeah, um, happy birthday and, indeed. Uh, uh, she, she's 29. what? she's thirty. Twenty nine. Twenty nine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as we uh, wrestle with what to do, what what our what college and her last year of high school are gonna be like for for Lucy, our daughter. Um, the more you dwell on it, the angrier you, you get about the fritter, the waste of time, you know, and like there'd be nothing wrong with having schools set up where you get tested on the way in, you get tested on the way out, right. you get tested when you come home, you know, in case you were on a bus or something right. like that, right. you know. Um, and, you know, and Americans who had a problem with that, you could, you know, then you could come up with issues with that, but... I, it's, Why would
1: anyone have a problem with finding out whether they were diseased or not? I mean, they don't have to tell anybody.
0: I have lost the capacity <laughs> to be shocked by people's willingness to take offense at certain things for political purposes. I mean, there was a piece in the Washington Times this week, but I believe the, op- the opinion editor there, basically saying that it is a fundamental form of tyranny and a violation of our constitution to require people to wear face masks on planes and, uh-huh. um, and who owns the planes? Yeah. No, <laughs> let's it's a pinata of stupidity. You can bash it from any angle and you'll get some reward. It's just, it's very, very frustrating. And so but my only point is, is like, if you got a problem with it, we can come up with remedies about all that. Um, but you know, on your point about sort of paying people for lockdown, one of the things that would be, extremely useful and make that more attractive to them, is if they had access to ExpressVPN. There you go. So we all know that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? You know that? If you don't, you should. Um, but here's something that you might not know that it's actually pretty handy, particularly given the uh, long lockdown. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So the exciting news is like, say you're like looking for something new and you can't find anything on American Netflix. Well, Doctor Who is on UK Netflix. Um, There are all sorts of things, you know, that you cannot get, I I, discovered this because my daughter, when she was in Spain, she watched almost an entirely different Netflix than the one we have here. So it's, it's basically an undiscovered country for you to explore. It's so simple to do. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and bada boom, there you go. See, this is because ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away to a really weird, weird place. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason you should use ExpressVPN to watch shows is that it's, it's it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all of your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on the big screen, wherever you are. So if you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash remnant, not dingo, for reasons that will remain historically a mystery. If you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash remnant, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so we've done um, we've done a lot of, uh, of pandemic talk um, in the time we have left. I have a little more time with you, Ron. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay, so I, 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 I'm just sitting here typing all day. So, um, uh, so we uh, um, we've had a regular parade of. Um, libertarians through here and all the rest and one of the questions i always ask them um is uh whether or not they are in favor uh first of all of drug legalization i know you are right yes right so would you be fine vending machines at bars i'm sorry vending machines at bars yeah yeah it's a great idea and um Would you be in favor of big corporations advertising their specific brands of heroin on, say, Saturday morning television? Well, only if it's a candy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so so gummy heroin would be okay on Saturday morning. Okay. Um, Oh
1: look, as as we all know, there was a friend of mine who many years ago said um libertarianism is for adults only mm-hmm. and i really ad- i adhere to that is, is of course i want parents to watch out for their kids and so there're some things that they probably shouldn't be doing uh and i, I yeah you know, I, I no you shouldn't <laughs> you shouldn't provide heroin to your children unless of course they're being too noisy
0: okay so uh, cuz it this is one of these things where Lots of, as you know, lots of conservatives consider themselves pretty libertarian on a lot of things, although that number is shrinking. Um, I don't, what, what, a question to you, what the hell is a conservative anymore? Uh, As you may, as you may have figured out from the name of this podcast, The Remnant. (laughs) um, What, there are five of you left? I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer.
1: Um, I mean, my God, what has happened to you people? I... The the pod people have landed and taken over what was left of your brains. It's just
0: Uh, embarrassing. um, Fair enough. Uh, (laughs) I I have no, I know. I mean, people at this stage of this podcast do not want to hear more more of these familiar rants from me, but um, I will say I find it interesting the... You know, uh, I think Ross Douthat calls it folk libertarianism, which is okay. very different than your libertarianism. But this. Whatever this sort of, Friedrich Hayek said was right. Yeah, which is sort of my libertarianism, <laughs> right? Um, uh, and, of course, we all know that Friedrich Hayek didn't call himself a libertarian. He called yeah. himself an old Whig. Uh, right. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, the. An old Whig,
1: by the way, was a libertarian. We used to call them liberals. Unfortunately, we have to call ourselves libertarians, as we know, because the progressives stole our name. That's true.
0: No, I agree. Um, I agree with that entirely. And and this is one of these great frustrations: is that the as as, again as Hayek points out, the liberals were the rebels, and then uh, without ever really getting the power that that we wish they had, the rise of socialism took the mantle of sort of rebelliousness away from the liberals. And the liberals got stuck with being the defenders of a status quo that they'd actually hadn't gotten yet. Okay. And um, and so liberalism was seen all of a sudden as less of a left-wing thing, which it definitely was, yes. um, as a right-wing thing, because it was opposed to socialism, which really was reactionary, as I think we both
1: know. Right. I, I think <laughs> you wrote read a whole book about that.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Um, but the folk libertarians are sort of the gadsden flag. Uh, keep keep your masks off of me crowd that are showing up at a lot of these. Uh, By the way, I've seen
1: Gadsden flag masks. I really like the, the, that message. It's very. Uh,
0: I like those. And, and I think yeah. that personally, I think you guys need to start pushing the dangers. Don't, don't of, cough on me. <laughs> no, but <laughs> start pushing the, uh, the dangers of facial recognition software more. Because I've,
1: I've been pushing that. I don't know if you've read my stuff. I think it's my, my colleagues are saying, Ron, you can't do this yet. I want to <laughs> outlaw government use of facial recognition technology, period.
0: In all it, circumstances.
1: Yes. It's terrible. Um, so like you don't like real time facial recognition technology. If you want to use it for going through suspect files or something, that's fine. But you're not allowed to monitor people in real time. Okay. Okay. So you have no problem at passport control,
0: like looking into I, the camera and.
1: Actually, I do, because I don't know <laughs> what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't trust my government to keep that data private and secret.
0: But they, they know you're coming through the. I know. The but port I, anyway, because you're I, giving them I, your passport. I,
1: I, I, I'll be happy to show papers, please, still.
0: Okay. I, I my only point about the facial recognition stuff is that that these people who think they're really sticking it to the man by not wearing a mask. <laughs> if you convince them that wearing a mask is okay, a way to stick yeah. it to the men like exactly. they do in Hong Kong and China, it would be much better. It would um, be. Um, but there is there is an interesting amount of pro-Trumpism and pro, let's say, some version of nationalism, even among the tribes that would probably be considered more on the libertarian side than the conservative side. And I think it's kind of interesting. Um, do you not see it? You know, I mean, the these, these these protest groups are kind of Tea Party 2.0 and they're using the again the language of Volk, folk, folk not Volk, folk libertarianism. Yeah. <laughs> um uh and it's been a little surprising to me how um a lot of the guys who were on the libertarian side of the right have also gone pretty nationalist MAGA. I'm thinking of people like my friend, Larry Kudlow, people like Steve Moore, um, uh, you know, Nick Gillespie is obviously not all MAGA, but he is much softer on Trump than um, than you might expect from an, a libertarian magazine. Um, how is in your... We're, I, I need to talk to Nick about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I, I'm just kind of curious as a sociological thing, you know, both of us spend a lot of time thinking about or at least we used to, about the weird little subcultures on the right, um, what is the health of libertarianism four years, or three and a half years into to the Trump years?
1: That's a very good question. Uh, I live, as you know, I live in my own bubble of, of people who work at Reason, who are fantastic colleagues, much smarter than I am, and th- are very, very much more thoughtful about these things than I am. So I feel quite insulated. <laughs> Yeah, from all of these uh, 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 political trends as opposed to intellectual trends,
0: um, and you live in Charlottesville, where you are oh, yeah. you are the libertarian in Charlottesville, right? I,
1: I, I well, I think there is one other uh, <laughs> anyway cohabitating with you, yeah. right? Yeah, the People's Republic of Charlottesville is not a not a joke. Uh, well, maybe it is. <laughs> uh, no, the no, I think that. Part of the problem, again, I'm speculating because I don't really know the motivations of the people, is that, they, that the lockdown, they're seeing the flattening of the economy and the destruction of their livelihoods, and they're, they're seeing uh, a lot of people like uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, who are basically saying, this is great because we get all this other stuff that I wanted all the time anyway, as they do. And so they're becoming reactionary in that sense. Is They're basically saying, if these people think the crisis is bringing them what they want, then I want the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're in a, it is a folk reaction. It's a reactionary way of being, but it, it's not very thoughtful. Um, I, you know, I... I There's, there's so many other ways that this could have gone. And unfortunately, we're not going to live in that counterfactual world. We are living in a world where essentially our incompetent government took control of something and flattened both the economy and did not solve
0: the pandemic. Well, sometimes you have to destroy the village to save it. Um, um, well, I am. Um, I particularly love. But we didn't save it either. But <laughs> um, I, I particularly love the uh, the argument. You see it on cable television i know you don't watch much of it but i don't
1: um, i used to watch it when i could go to the
0: gym but no there are these stories you know they started sprinkling out about three weeks ago two weeks ago of these they were careful but it was always these sort of the silver lining of the pandemic or the unexpected upside of the pandemic was the drop in emissions and then or (laughs) the cleaner water here or there the cleaner air over new delhi and And that's all fine. At first, they were just like these interesting human interest things like animals coming back into cities. And I love those stories. Right. But then the activists got a hold of it and they started saying, see, this proves it can be done. Yeah. (laughs) And I love this argument because like for people like me and and for people like you, the, the basic response to what they wanted to do was it would be too expensive. And, right. you know, like, you know, throwing Bro, a wet blanket on the... and it turns the, out we were right. It's yeah, no, exactly. Efficient. It's like, <laughs> they look at, at, at double-digit drops per week in, like, GDP and employment, and they say, see, it, it can work. And it's like, no, see, but, it's too expensive. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, yeah, I think we win the argument. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, but, so... I, 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 I'll leave the libertarian baiting alone, um, but I just wanted to make the point. Well, that-
1: no, I, I, you know, just hop in the hot tub, join us. Give it, <laughs> give it up. I mean, look, your tribe has basically gone completely mad as far as I can tell. Our tribe, much better. Well, no, I mean,
0: it, part of the thing is that you guys had. Um- Who do
1: you want, Justin Amash or Biden or Trump?
0: Oh, if I had to choose, I would pick Amosh. You know, and yes, I, I sure, have big yeah. disagreements with Amash, but uh, but um, part of the reason I think why lots of libertarians were immune to some of these things is that when you already have your own diagnosed mental problems, you you are no longer as susceptible to other mental problems. Uh, the infect you have you've built up herd mu- you know, herd uh, immunity to some of these kinds of things. Um, But...
1: uh, So you're basically saying conservatives have very weak immune systems with regard to ideological uh, viruses.
0: To a certain extent, yes. Um, I mean, I think think part of the problem is, is that you spend such an enormous amount of time living in an environment where for a long time, look, it was, and I think you'd agree with this, for a very long time, it was as a sort of a heuristic or a, just sort of a rule of thumb that if certain groups of people said X, it was perfectly fine to assume not X or Y, you know. And the problem is, is it became more and more internalized that if they're for something, I'm against it, and then it became if they hate my person or they they hate this person, then I'm for that person, and um, and I, over time the 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 intellectual steps that brought you to a conclusion were sort of erased, and it became just a knee-jerk thing. And um, um, and so I, you know, I marvel at the fact that, for example, I don't know, the free trade has never been more popular among, <laughs> among Democrats in, in in for forty years, and it's never been less popular among Republicans. And it has nothing to do with anybody going to school on the issue. It That's, has to do with, you know, it
1: is, it's an embarrassment on both sides.
0: It is. And, it's and, and an I just intellectual
1: embarrassment.
0: Yeah. And I, it's, it's weird. And I have no problem. I mean, look, I, what, how much I agree with you. I haven't, I haven't done my due diligence yet on the climate change stuff, but I respect you for actually, I mean, it, it was hard for you to change your mind socially hard. I hated it. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't, I don't enjoy losing friends and making enemies all the time, <laughs> but, um, so it's not, a, not necessarily a fun thing, but it is, it's a, <clears throat> it's a weird time, you know, and it's just, and I don't think it goes away, um, for a while, I, I think. And I, I, so it's interesting. I don't know if you saw it. I wrote a thing about it, uh, yesterday. Um, this woman, Linda Hirschman, she's a feminist philosopher. She had a piece in the New York times, and I actually thought it was pretty well argued, given her priors and her, the assumptions and some question begging and whatnot, um, where she basically says, I believe Tara Reid. I think Biden did it. I'm voting for him anyway. And she actually uses this argument from Hume um, and utilitarianism generally, uh, but she uses this argument from Hume that's saying that you can't have justice when you have scarce resources. And Hume Hume has this line where he says um, you can't expect people to behave um, justly during a shipwreck, you know, where if the first priority is to save your own life, some niceties go out the window. And I'm not entirely sure I agree with all that, but I I think it's there's a point there to be sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and she says Donald Trump is our shipwreck. (laughs) And so even though I think it's terrible that Biden did this. Or that I think he did this, and that I'm terrible. That I am turning my back or facing a credible accuser. I'm going to vote for Biden because I am swimming for any safe harbor I can. And the interesting thing to me about it was this was the liberal, the progressive, feminist philosopher version of the flight ninety flight ninety three election, right? That's right. Existential doom or not, and. Right. Um, and, you know, the original flight 93 essay, which I thought was a terrible thing. Um, I did too. Uh, he didn't, you know, Anton, to his, I guess, credit, um, said he wasn't sure whether Trump was going to work out, but he, he just knew he was better than Hillary because Hillary would spell and spell the end of America. Right. Which I think was nonsense. Um, the fact that... Well, the good
1: news is that Trump is, uh, is proving that he is about to do that if he gets reelected, in my humble opinion. Yeah, and, okay. I, I, and I'm not a, I'm not a guy who, who trades an apocalyptic
0: rhetoric, but the man is extremely dangerous. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I think he's going to come up with something to deal with the murder hornets. That's going to be fantastic. But, <laughs> um, but my only point is is that you know, getting out of the Trump stuff, I just think it's fascinating that, that there's so much mirroring going on in our political culture or one tribe where the the blues see what the reds are doing and say, okay, we need to do that. And then the reds see how the blues are doing and they say, okay, now we need to do that. And the fact that you're now getting the, the left wing version of the flight 93 election thing, it basically boils down to saying, you know, all that really matters is power. Right, and if my team has power, because right. politics is zero sum, and right. I don't know how you get out of this, because that is a it is a death spiral. If everybody who tries to uphold a higher standard than less objectionable than the other guy, yep, you have it. You truly really have a tragedy of the commons, right? I mean, and and, yep. um, and I don't know how you pull out of that, so. Anyway, that's a really grim way to end
1: on this thing. Uh, it is extremely grim way to end it. Not only is the pandemic, we're, uh, we're 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 seeing the end of the republic, and making me feel like Cicero or something.
0: Um, well, all right. So, uh, on a slightly more upbeat note, then, um, I should tell you first of all, um, our mutual friend Scott McLucas, uh, yeah, just got his antibody test. He did have COVID, oh, and, he, okay. and he's through it, and he's fine. And second of all, uh, you and Marion Tupi have a book coming out at some point, yes. Uh, August. And it's all about how things have gotten so much better. Correct. Uh, Correct. For those of you who don't know, Marion Tupi uh, is at Cato. He was actually on, uh, on a previous episode of The Remnant. Um, and he also helped me enormously and Jack Butler enormously in putting together the data at the back of Suicide of the West, showing how much progress there has been in the last 300 years. Which is why I actually am the more optimistic of the two of us in terms of Ron and how Trump will spell the end of America. I don't think Trump will uh, spell the the end of America. Um, He'll just make our challenges more pronounced. More challenging. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. By the way,
1: just so your, your listeners will know, the name of the book, which will be available in August, is 10 Global Trends That Every Smart Person Should Know and a lot of others you might be
0: interested in. And um, give us one here, just a little tease. One trend. It doesn't have to be one of your ten. It could be some of the others. Just well, some no, sort of. I, uh, well,
1: and no, it not,
0: as we used to say when we were television.
1: The, 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 it not. Well, uh, let me give you two. One, of course, is that uh, probably, but that that human. I already gave it earlier. Is that over the course of the next century? uh global per capita income will basically go up six to seven times f- over what it is now basically our, by the end of the century people will be vastly much wealthier than they are currently
0: and they'll still be bitching about income inequality <laughs> they will be yeah
1: and that we didn't put that trend in but yes <laughs> they, will, they will be uh also world population will probably peak sometime around 2070 and start going down uh, and fascinatingly enough, over the last thirty years, forest cover on planet Earth has increased by four to five percent. Four to five or
0: 40? four to four to five percent. Okay. Yeah. So, and in, in the United States, and I there's another thing I you know, originally well, it's, learned it's, it's, from it's, you is that forest cover there's my, many much more forest cover today than was a hundred years ago, right? In the United States uh, can, not much,
1: but can, but can, you know not insignificant. Yes. Well, it has been increasing.
0: I think in the East Coast, at least. it's The definitely. East Coast, considerably more, yes. Yeah. I
1: mean, well, for example, Vermont used to be
0: 80% farms. It's now 80% forests. Yeah. Someday we're going to get that number to 100%. Um, <laughs> all right. My friend Ron Bailey, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm
1: delighted finally to be here. Let's do this every week.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, uh, definitely want to get you and, and Marion. Marion on the show when the book comes out and I'm sure happy to have you on more often. And, uh, um, I'm fully recognizing that all cre- increases from zero or infinite. Um, and, uh, please say hi to Pam. I will do that and happy birthday to Jessica. Thank you. Thank you. I'll pass that along. And, uh, that's about it. All right. So Ron has left the, uh, virtual chat room and, uh, um, you know, we didn't do enough memory lane stuff, but uh, I wasn't kidding when I said I've learned an enormous amount from, from Ron. We used to get into uh, pretty boozy um, at times, but uh, lots of knockdown, dragout fights between conservatism and libertarianism. Um, I've moved more in his direction than he's moved in mine, but he's also become uh, less of a right wing libertoid than he used to be um one of the things that made him sort of ideologically simpatico used to be the Cold War but that's all gone uh but I love Ron dearly he's one of my oldest and dearest friends and uh an, an immensely entertaining dude um although I'm not sure how much of that side of him came through today but you guys will let me know um other than that, uh, today, as I said, was the Mrs.'s birthday, and I have uh, much work to do. It turns out that provisioning adequate uh, sustenance and uh, shiny objects for one's wife during a pandemic and economic shutdown is challenging. So I'm going to go deal with much of that, and I still got to write a column as well. And then tonight we're doing this uh, dispatch event thing too. So it's a busy day. Um, so if you can sign up, really appreciate it. Um, I've been reading the feedback from people quite a bit. Um, it's always appreciated even when I'm, you know, sometimes I think it's on the money. Sometimes I think it's unfair. Sometimes I think it's, uh, you know, nuttier than a Zagnut bar, but you know, it's all appreciated. And, um, Other than that, I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. It just helps him sync the audio. I I I I understand. This is a lot uh,
1: easier than television used to be, I must say. uh, Tell me about it.
0: Um, Okay, so...